if you want, while you're moving towards seats, we're going to start a new series called um, Under the Sun today. Being Ecclesiastes, so if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible that's in front of you and find Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that's where we're going to start today. It's interesting, this book of Ecclesiastes. I didn't really dive into it until a few years ago. I was at a um, global leadership summit because that's what you do when you're pastors and on church staffs. You go to all these conferences and they talk to you about how to be a better person for Jesus and teacher and leader and they just like throw speaker after speaker at you. And and the, the closing speaker of this particular summit was a man named Erwin McManus. And McManus is um, known as a polarizing figure, right? He's like, he's even called himself a futurist for a while. Like he could predict the future of where the church and people were going, which is really interesting if to, I don't know if I could sign my emails as like Chris Cox, futurist, that you were describing what was going to happen. But as that story had been unveiled, what we found out is that there were a group of Texas businessmen who believed in McManus's message so much that they funded his work for years and said, we just want you to be a futurist and tell us what we should do before we should do it and go. And so he was being privately funded by a community of people that just wanted him to be a futurist. And so he had the freedom to really stand on a stage and say whatever he believed that the future was going to become. <clears throat> he was a a great voice in the movement from like modern age and 1900s into these 2000s of the beginnings of postmodernism. He had a lot of things going for him. He wrote a book called The Unstoppable Force. And it was a great book for me in, in becoming a, a minister. It illustrated what community, what ethos could look like when the church was coming together. And so I would respected him in this writing and in this creation. But he walks on stage and out of, his, out of his mouth, in his first words, he says, we're opening up Ecclesiastes because I want to talk to you about how Solomon was wrong. And you could hear in the room full of ministers, like the deep gasp of how dare you question scripture, you pagan futurist, right? Like it was this moment of stones were going to be thrown, his house was going to be caught on fire. Someone in that room was starting a website that actually had a countdown. This is a true part of it that had a countdown to the moment of Erwin McManus's death. Like they had actually planned to kill him because he like had scripture. There was a there was a timer on the website that said the day that Erwin McManus will die, and it was counting backward. Um, Weird things happen to preachers when they say things, right? Like, it's just weird. So he says Solomon was wrong. My first response was, we don't even know that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, so I don't even know if it was Solomon. And what are you trying to get at? What are you looking for? And as he shared his message, his message wasn't really about whoever wrote Ecclesiastes being wrong. His message was about this idea that when you read Ecclesiastes, if you're looking for absolute truth that works in every circumstance, you shouldn't look here. Because this isn't a book that's written with this effort to try to give us this rule for life that if this, then that. It's a conversation being had by someone who wanted to pursue wisdom in words and in actions and to produce and share their conclusions of what they found 
in searching all of the world to see what works, what doesn't work, what might be a principle worth living by, what might not be. But if we go into a study of Ecclesiastes, and many have done this, of going into the study of this wisdom writing and saying, let me grab this verse and make it like this mandate for my life, and it's going to be true all the time. And words like vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1. We'll read it in a minute and use a different word. But we've heard this of saying, well, everything is vanity. Maybe. Maybe. But sometimes it's not. It's about perspective and circumstance and preconceived notions and presuppositions that we have on life and, and the way that we view the world. And McManus was reminding me as he was teaching in this first message that as he was coming out, he was saying the church has lost its creativity because we believe there's nothing new under the sun. And so we just create these models of reproduction from another church that we saw down the street. At that time, he was standing in Willow Creek Church in Chicago, which was one of the fastest growing churches at the time, and one of which multiple churches were just trying to recreate. In the same conference that he was saying, we've lost our creativity, I walked past a group of elders who were actually measuring the size and dimensions of a room at Willow Creek and having a discussion on how they would build that exact same thing because they planned on having 30,000 people at their church. And they were like, writing down exact like you know inches to the wall and they're like well we would have to expand the wall a little bit because there's this aspect of life sometimes that we lose meaning when we've lost creativity and what McManus was pushing in his message was we've lost creativity in the church and we're just reproducing whatever we have seen as a winner somewhere else. And therefore Solomon must be wrong because there is something new under the sun. There are new ways to do church. There's a new style. And if I look back at that message and see where the church has come since then, I would agree that the church has progressed since then. People aren't only building mega churches and buying really big buildings and trying to get people to come into one space. There's a satellite church movement. There are house churches that are happening. There are communities like Echo that are saying we want to invest and diversify into a community and to build organically and creatively from the ground up. Very different models have happened, but are they new? None of us would say that they're new. If you ask Steve and Kelly from the foundation of Echo, is this a new model that we're building a church? They would say, no, it's a biblical model. It's not really new under the sun, but it might be new to us. It might be new to our generation. And I'm saying all of this in an introduction to say over the next few weeks as we study Ecclesiastes, if we look at this of saying these are mandates and you can't push against them, we're looking at them from the wrong perspective. Instead, we would look at these as invitations to converse with God about things that don't make any sense and that we don't understand. And that's what I love about Ecclesiastes in verse 1, starting with this author, this teacher, saying, I am the great teacher, and everything is meaningless. That gives me peace of going, oh, it's okay to talk to God about stuff that doesn't make any sense. I don't have to be worried about punishment. I don't have to be waiting for wrath. This is not a judgment thing that's coming, but this is the teacher, the preacher, 
maybe the king of Israel standing and assembling people and saying, it's okay to talk to God about the hard stuff, about the weird stuff, about the stuff that doesn't line up with what we know about science, about the stuff that we don't know that lines up about family, about the stuff that we just don't understand, and about the stuff that just seems absolutely pointless. It's okay to talk to him about the stuff that doesn't make any sense. And not only is it okay, but I believe that by the end of this series, we'll see that by talking through the stuff that doesn't make sense, the stuff that doesn't work out well and fit in a neat little Jesus box, we'll actually find the life beyond the sun. So let's dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. It starts with this. It says, The words of the teacher... Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We're going to pause in three different places as we go through this text this morning. And this is the first one. The first thing that I want us to make sure that we know is that Ecclesiastes is actually not even a Hebrew word. The name of the book doesn't come from the Hebrew context of how the book was written. It's not the name of a person. It's not the name of a king or a prophet. It's actually from a Greek word, ekklesia, that was then given to, back to write on this, that based on verse 1 where it's saying the teacher or the preacher would actually be the assembler or the gatherer. And so these are the writings of the gatherer, the one who assembles people. The word in Greek, ekklesia, we've taken to mean church. I know that because that is the first Greek word I ever screwed up as a minister. I, in my first internship, showed up on a Sunday morning in Xenia, Ohio, sat in the pew, and my coach, my boss, my mentor, my discipler, the guy whose job I was hoping to take, his name is Dave, and Dave was the youth minister at the time, and Dave always liked to fly by the seat of his pants. He loved just maybe moving with the Spirit would be a nice way to say it, but in in reality, he was just never organized. And so as church starts, he sits next to me, and he's like, hey, I have a great idea. You should do the closing announcements. Cool. When? In five minutes. Like, we're almost finished with this. Like, you should do this. He didn't tell me at the beginning of the service. He told me at the end, like, I'm like, what do you want me to announce? I've never been to this church before. He's like, I know, I know. But you're the intern, and we need to introduce you to everyone. And I had a great idea while the church was going on. You should close the service. I'm like, great. So he hands me his bulletin that has like four bullet points of what we're supposed to talk about at the end of the church before the church is dismissed. And he's like, okay, and you're up. So church of like 600 people, and I'm testing it out. I came from a church of like 100 people in Kentucky, so I didn't have a lot of larger group experience. So I walk on stage with platinum blonde hair and two earrings in my ears. Visualize it with me. I was the real Slim Shady, for sure. Yes, that, yes, there was a season. And I worked at Abercrombie. Can you see it? So there are open-toed shoes, earrings, platinum blonde hair in Xenia, Ohio. They had never seen anything like me, right? They did not know what was happening. And so I walk on stage, and as I get to the front of the stage, I talk about this 4th of July program that is... The, the real worship service of that community, these two small groups that are happening. And then I say, and on Wednesday, Ecclesia will be meeting. And you hear like an entire gasp from the church of like, oh, he said, Ecclesia. 
he doesn't know Greek, we can't hire him. So I walk off the stage and I get this really firm handshake from this elder that's been there since Jesus was on the earth. And he looks at me and he says, boy, if you're going to be here, you better learn how to pronounce the words right. And I sit down and I'm, my ears are red and I'm burning and Dave looks over and he's like, it's Ecclesia, man. And I'm like, I haven't taken Greek yet. Like, I'm just a sophomore. I have another class coming. So I've never forgotten Ecclesia because I'm an idiot, right? Like, because I made a fool out of myself in front of everything. But the Ecclesia is actually the assembly. We, we've turned it in the New Testament. It's the church. It's the gathering of Christians and believers. But it's this idea of when the people are assembled then they are spoken something. And I think that's really important because what is said is often just as important as who it is said to. And so I want us to have the visual picture that when the community is assembled, the one who is trained and empowered to speak to those who are gathered, the gatherer who gets everything together, the most important he felt like these were the words that he thought we needed to hear. That the assembled people needed to hear was it's all meaningless it's all a joke it has no point it's all vanity like his first words he didn't have an intro he didn't have a, a hook his first words are this is stupid this is pointless the Hebrew word there is Hevel, which is like a, a breath or a vapor. It's like breathing on a mirror and how it fogs up and then it just disappears in a second. He's like, life, all of your entire life from birth to death is like that. It's like, gone. The crowd in that moment has to be like, yeah, huh? My life is what? Yeah, it's just, it's crap. Your life is nothing. It's pointless. It's worthless. It's meaningless. This is what I have for you, O assembled people. The wisdom of the Lord is, it's all stupid. I'm intrigued though, right? Because, because I've wondered that. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered if you're really here for anything? If there's any deeper meaning to what you've got going on? The first like meaningless moment that I can remember was finishing playing football as a, as a senior in high school. I don't know if you've played sports, but coaches in high school sports believe that the entire world is at stake if you don't win. My team was terrible through high school. Like, we won two games when I was a sophomore. We were defeated 72 to zero when I was a sophomore. That felt good. Yeah. We were so bad that me at 5'5 five five had to play varsity quarterback for two games because our other two quarterbacks were so concussed that they couldn't go back out. I couldn't see over the line. It was awesome. We just did like quarterback sneak all the time and I just slipped through all the, the holes because no one could see me either. But going into my senior year, we got a new coach. And this coach had won state championships. And the first day of practice, he introduced us to these things called royals. And royals were like 20-yard sprints, but you had to do like sequences of them until you threw up. And you would go 20 yards down, 20 yards back, 20 yards down, 20 yards back, 20 yards down, 20 yards back, 15-second break, and then you would do three more. And we're just exhausted. 
July, August weather. And he kept saying, but this is going to pay off in November. Right? He keeps yelling at us of how it's going to pay off in the last game of the season because we're going to be in such great shape. We throw up multiple times. Everyone's sick. People pass out, but you work through it. Some days you have to work out your legs in the weight room and then you go run these royals. You hate life. You wonder if you should quit. But we're playing for November. It's going to come. And then it's November. And we get beat 21 to 7 in our last game. And I walk off the field knowing I'll never play football again because, like, what college is, like, giving this dude a scholarship, right? I started my soccer career after that and met Steve. And I'm walking off the field, and I'm feeling emotional, but I'm not feeling emotional like, oh, no, I'm so sad it's over. I'm feeling anger. Why did I do all of this work and throw up all of those times when we were just going to lose anyway? Meaningless. Some things just feel meaningless. There are some college classes. Maybe you felt that. You're like, why are we even here? What is the point of this? Jobs that just don't feel like there's a point to them. But then there are some days where you're probably standing in front of the dishes that you have to do again. And you're like, what is the point? Like, is this what my life has come down to? Washing other people's bowls. Again, I just cleaned this counter yesterday. And it's dirty. Again. The car needs gas. Again. What are we... Why? We're just going to eat, watch, and sleep. Again. What's the point? I love that the author starts with this meaninglessness because I think when the day ends, it's actually the question we're all really asking about whether or not God is real because we don't know whether or not the day-to-day crap that we do has a purpose to it. Am I just going to wake up tomorrow and complain again or go through struggle again or be sick again? Or watch my finances deplete again. What's it all for? And he affirms us and says, if it's all for that, it's really for nothing. And that kind of gives me peace. He then continues in verse 3, and I'll read it, but it's not going to be on the screen because we're going to pause in verse 8 in just a second. But in verse 3 it says, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? I ask this every time I was in a tobacco patch in Kentucky. I have no idea what we gained from that mess. Because I would watch as my grandparents worked so hard on tobacco. It is is the hardest work I've ever done. That and concrete work in Mexico. And then I watched them go into these warehouses and sell the tobacco in these bales and people would auction it off and I would see that they would get pennies on the dollar for all that they had done months and then once they paid their employees and then they fixed the tractor and then they came home and bought another cow for the farm. Like This, this is my real life story growing up, by the way. And I'm like, why, why did we work that hard? And they're like, this is all we know. And that was it. And it was grueling. 
It says generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, but the, street, the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And it says all things are wearisome. More than one can even say. The eye never has enough to see. The ears, nor the ear, it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. I read this with the sarcasm of a writer. But I hear this, I try to hear this, as the God he's writing and speaking to. Who he's like, God, like, round and round your world goes. Like, he's, he's in tune with the creator and he's willing to make fun of how this world never seems to change. He's like, yeah, you made earth. And it just kind of like spins around and around and around and goes. And then there's water in it and it goes to the ocean. But the ocean's not full. Why did you make this stuff? Why, why did you do any of this? It's going to rain and we're going to complain about that. And then it's going to be really, really hot and feel like 105 degrees. We're going to complain about that. And then it's going to snow and we're going to complain about that. But you know what's going to happen every year? They're going to be the same four seasons and we're going to complain about all of them because none of them ever change and none of them ever surprise us. Right? Sound like Ohio? But that's what he's actually saying the same thing. It just goes around and around and we're tired of it. And he says, there's nothing new, nothing new under the sun. It's really interesting that here he says, there's nothing new under the sun. Because the one who created the sun isn't under the sun, he's outside of it. He's beyond it. What the writer is saying is that if we're looking only under this creation and under this sun, probably going to be meaningless. We might have to look beyond it. He's enticing us to look past what we can see and feel, but he's not giving us the answer yet. He's saying, but it's okay to question everything under this sun. As you leave church today and see that it is 103 degrees outside. Again, it's okay to question anything that's happening under the sun. The question is what's beyond it. Then it says, is, anything, is there anything out of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And then continues to go. It pauses from his like digression of, well, this all sucks. And then he goes into an establishment of, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, which is why people think this was Solomon. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a, heaven, a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
It says in 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. And then he says in 16, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also the madness of folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. The author's just like, I just want you to know I tried it all. For your sake. I smoked it all. I drank it all. I ate it all. I slept with it all. I bought it all. I drove it all. I climbed it all. I jumped off of it all. Just for you. Like he was freely giving himself a pass on any kind of chaotic life that he lived. Of like, I just want you to know, I lived it up. And at the time, I was taking notes to see where wisdom was in living up all of this life and by enjoying all of this. And this is actually the perspective that anyone who defends that this is from Solomon, they're like, this is why he had a thousand girls. This is why he had a kingdom full of all of these riches. Is that he's justifying it by saying, in order to become the wisest man who has ever walked this earth, I need to experience everything. Like you could, I could say it to you but it's better if I test it. And I tested everything. Not only the wise things, but the mad things and the foolish things. I tested it all. And what I found? Havel. Another breath. It all just goes away. The satisfaction is there one moment, and then it goes away the next. It's there quickly, and then it's fleeting. I've tried everything. And all of it, all of it just goes away like a breath. It's all going to leave you empty. That's his landing in this first chapter. And it could be depressing. We could feel the darkness of it. Instead, I like... I like to see that this is the ending of chapter 1 because I think, it's, I think it's realistic. I think it's the conversations that many of my friends want me to have with them, but sometimes my temptation is to Jesify the conversation and make it sound better than it is. Satisfaction is fleeting. Humanity breaks down over time. Death comes to us all. Methods of how to live life change. Things can be going so well and then go so wrong. The conversation is not how once you are entered into the ecclesia, the assembly, that now everything's okay, but it's actually that once you are into the ecclesia, it's a safe place to talk about the things that aren't okay. And to find meaning beyond the sun, beyond the here and now, for those things that aren't feeling okay, that don't seem to be working out well, whether political, socioeconomical, personal, or psychological. That our God is okay with us saying, if all of this is meaningless, why did you even breathe me into existence? Why am I here if my story was going to be like this? And maybe that's the space you're in this morning as you 
came into this place that you're like, I don't know if I really want to talk about Jesus or God yet, but I do know I need to talk about something. But I don't know if it's under the sun or beyond the sun. And as I read this idea of there's nothing new under the sun, I kept in my mind going, but Jesus says there is. Jesus says there is. Jesus says there is. And I was reminded of John 10.10. 10. Where Jesus says, the thief only comes to steal and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. And so if I read Ecclesiastes 1, knowing the truth of John 10, 10, knowing that Jesus is coming, and Jesus came from beyond the sun, right? Like he didn't come from the earth. He came from the forever. He came from the eternal. He came from the no beginning, no ending space. He came from the, I spoke this into the existence as God space. And if he comes from the forever, and he's beyond that, and he's coming in going, yeah, I know you've heard that under the sun, is meaninglessness. I have come into this space under the sun from beyond that place to show you what life to the full can look like. Are you interested? Do you want life and life to the full or do you want to let this thief of meaningless continue to kill and destroy our hope for a meaningful future? In my experience, there are three ways that we respond when there's meaningless around us that will actually lead to a forever life. And this is my invitation to you this morning, is to take one of these three and practice it this week. The first is to talk out Havel. When we feel meaninglessness, when we feel like life is fleeting, when we feel like there is no purpose, there are these overwhelming emotions that start to overwhelm us, and the meaninglessness becomes a rabbit trail that we go down that leads to darkness. But when we say, is this it? Is this all I'm worth to someone else? And they're able to say, not to me. You're worth so much more to me. If my wife has a moment where she says, is this it? And I say, no, I mean, obviously not. That is not it. Your purpose is not based on whatever you just saw today. Because my life has meaning with you next to me. And with you leading me. And with you making me laugh. And with you nurturing, and with you adventuring, and the same goes the other way for her. Yesterday, I was building a deck on the back of my house. Yay for me. It was hot. And I have a family member who notices things that aren't perfect, even to the point where he will make the effort to bring out levels and say, let me check if that's perfect. And as I'm piecing a deck together, he's trying to level it out. He's like, hmm, huh, well. And in my mind, I'm like, I need you to leave because I have a nail gun in my hand 
And I can accidentally send it in a direction of, hmm, well, not perfect. Like I have the heat and the dehydration and the frustration with this board that is not straight that I need to put into this deck that you're saying is not level and I may just want to shoot this nail at your face. And I don't. He leaves. And in my mind, I begin to get into this place of this is stupid. I'm not a carpenter. I shouldn't be doing this. I wanted to try it. I have a father who's a carpenter. I've learned some things. This is saving me a ton of money by doing it myself. I can finish this. But then I'm in that moment and he leaves and I'm like, but this is stupid. This is meaningless. This is pointless. Why wouldn't I just let a professional do this? Why am I doing this? What is this? And it's in that moment that Sarah walks out onto the deck and I say, that was frustrating. He actually got the level out. And she said, did he say anything good? Not a word. He just like questioned everything and then left. And then her response was, I love it. I just want it to be finished. I can't wait till I'm sitting in this corner and editing photos. And she gave me vision out of my meaninglessness, beyond what I could see. But she would have had no idea that I was struggling had I not spoken the breath, right? Like had I not let the vapor, the moment, the meaningless moment out. So maybe this week, you just need to talk the meaningless. Talk the frustration. If you had a weekend that you were like, why am I doing this? What is the point? This is crazy. I shouldn't have said yes to this in the first place. Your, your action step today is to speak it to someone so that they can look at you and say, you are amazing. You are God-breathed. You are here for a purpose. We don't understand it, but I'm with you. Which leads to the second, because maybe someone's going to speak something to you this week, and you need to empathize with the weariness of the round and round it goes, right? Because someone next to you is going, I wake up, I am frustrated, this is empty, this is burdening, this is overwhelming. It's just the circle is spinning around and around, and you know because they've been telling you the same story for days and days. Why isn't this getting better? Why isn't this getting better? And you will empathize with the weariness of the round and round it goes. 